taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who put their trust in the Lord, their shepherd. I'm not going to say I'm happy that Pastor Matt is sick, but I'm thankful for an opportunity to minister in the word to all of you. If you'd turn your attention back to the book of Colossians, we'll be in Colossians 1 this evening, particularly verses 9 through 14. And I have a very poignant memory of this passage of Scripture. It was not long after I trusted the Lord as my Savior and placed my faith and trust in the finished work of Christ as an eight-year-old that missionaries Lucho and Charla Gutierrez came to our church in New Ulm, Minnesota. And two things really stood out to me about Lucho. He was a really normal guy. So normal that when he came over for lunch, he went fishing for carp and then brought the carp into our house and scaled the carp in our house. So those uh, little fish that your kids brought from the nursery or junior church this morning that had those little silver scales on them, anybody see those? We had those through our house for like a week. That was a, a very poignant memory. But when he was ministering the word to us, he got up and very passionately told us about new converts in Spain. And I remember as an eight-year-old, Lucho telling us, pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. And my eight-year-old mind was saying to itself, why? I don't know them. I don't know anything about them. I don't know their names. I don't know their hair color, their eye color, their height, their weight, their friends, their circumstances. Why are you asking me, Lucho, to pray for them. And he poured his heart out to us from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, echoing the Apostle Paul, who when he had heard the faith of the faith of people whom he had never met, prayed for them, that they would walk worthy of the gospel. Several months ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go out to Monterey, California, and minister the word at a weekend conference to a church. And I remember being invited out there, and the first thing I asked myself was, why? I don't know anyone there. And the one person that I kind of knew there was a very loose connection. What am I going to say to them? I don't know anything about them. I don't know what to pray for about them. And the Lord brought to mind again Colossians 1, 9 through 14. Pray for them unceasingly that they would walk worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is such a simple message, a simple prayer of the Apostle Paul for believers. It is applicable for all of us, and I'd love to call our attention to it this evening. And I want to encourage you tonight, in light of our mutual salvation, to walk worthy of of the Lord and be fully pleasing to him. Walk worthy of the Lord and be fully pleasing to him. To walk worthy of the salvation of God which we were unworthily called unto. And we'll ask two questions of the text this evening. And then we'll discuss those answers by going through the text. The two questions that we will ask are this. What does a worthy walk require. And we will see that beginning in verse 9, building up to the phrase, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, in verse 10. And then the second question we will ask is, what does a worthy walk look like? 
So number one, what does a worthy walk require? And secondly, what does a worthy walk look like? And if you want to think of it this way, think about baking a cake. The first question talks about what are the ingredients. The second question is what should the cake look like and taste like? Paul gives us a very practical prayer for us to model and follow and pray for one another. And Father, as we begin by looking into your word, we humbly ask you by the power of your spirit to open our eyes and see Jesus. We ask that the Holy Spirit would exalt the finished work of Jesus Christ, that he would recall to our minds the truths which he has taught to his disciples and upon which the the apostles built. Lord, teach us your word and teach us to rightly adhere to it out of love for Christ, that we may walk worthy of the gospel of Christ, of which we are unworthy. In whose name we pray, amen. Let me read for us once again verses 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard, Paul says, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does a worthy walk require? Let's just look at this phrase by phrase. Paul says that you may be filled. What comes to your mind when you hear the word filled? Perhaps your yard this winter as you didn't think you could handle any more snow. Anybody else's uh, snowblower not able to cast the snow up past the snowbank? That was my snowblower. I need a new snowblower. What comes to your mind when you hear filled? You think of a glass of water that is being filled up and then fills to overflowing. The word filled here is a potential verb. It is something which causes us to be taken over or controlled or influenced or possessed. And really, this is what it means. Last week, when my family was in a car accident, we were all filled with fear. It took us over. It controlled us. It influenced us. And Paul is telling us that he is praying that we would be influenced and controlled and taken over by something here. In a sense, this is synonymous <clears throat> excuse me, with spirit filling. And I'd encourage you to turn over to the sister book of Colossians in Ephesians chapter 3, very quickly. Ephesians 3, Paul says in verse 16, He's praying that according to the riches of his glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ, the word of Christ, may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled, there's that same word again, Influence, controlled with all the fullness of God. Paul says that you may be filled, a potential controlling. And then he says, filled with what? What should you be filled with? He goes on, what's the next word? Filled with the knowledge. What is knowledge? Such a basic question for such a basic word. The word Paul uses here for knowledge 
is not a basic type of knowledge. There's a couple of Greek words. One would be gnosis, basic knowledge. The word Paul uses here is epigenosis, not general knowledge, but specific knowledge. Paul wants us to become experts in the field of the knowledge of God. It's a word that is used to describe moral or spiritual truth, not just trivial things. Anybody here really good at trivial pursuit? That's not what Paul's talking about here, unless it's Bible trivial pursuit. Trivial things, no. Intense, intimate knowledge about the person of God. I want you to be controlled with the knowledge of God. I want your mind to go beyond the outer object of the potential of God and to have a relational, intimate knowledge with God. We don't have the time to read these verses But in Colossians chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, Paul really, I think, extrapolates what he means by this. I'd encourage you to read that later. But this makes sense to us, right? Many of you know me, know some things about me, but your knowledge of me is basic as compared to your best friends or to the knowledge of your spouse, the person whom you are really supposed to be getting to know That is the type of knowledge that the Apostle Paul says here. Are you increasing in your relational knowledge and understanding of the heart of the God who sent you, Jesus Christ, to be your Savior? Are you increasing in that? Then he goes on to say, not just in a a knowledge, but in all wisdom. And he's piling up these words here to, to make a point. He starts with epigenosis, this intense knowledge. And then he goes on to wisdom. The word Sophia, and this is theological knowledge, theoretical knowledge, systematic knowledge, a collation of all of that stuff that you know and an applicational system of how to live it out. Then he goes on to another word to pile this on even more, not just knowledge, but not just wisdom, but also the word understanding. This word understanding is the word synesis. It is the application of both knowledge and wisdom, and really it is the proofed answer of two plus two equals four. What is Paul getting at here? Are these just words that we're explaining for the fun of knowledge? No, I think this is what Paul is getting at here. Put this all together. What is Paul saying? Let me give you some silly illustration that Minnesotans will all understand. How many know what salt is. Everybody knows what salt is, right? That's gnosis. You know salt exists. Epigenosis. I know salt is a combination of sodium and chloride elements and that water will separate those elements. At least I did after I Googled that. (laughs) Sophia. When separated into separate sodium and chloride ions, Salt disrupts the bonds between water molecules, thus making it possible to melt ice when the temperature is below freezing. You know what's next? Sunesis. I liberally throw that salt onto my driveway. Or perhaps you're from the south and that doesn't make much sense to you. What about basketball? Anybody know the sport of basketball? It's got a round ball. If you know that, you're on on the right track. Gnosis. I know basketball is a sport. 
Epigenosis. I played basketball and I coached basketball for years. I understand the nuances of the game. Sophia, I understand the multiple situations that can happen throughout a basketball game. And I can even tell my, my, my spouse as I'm watching the game with them everything they're going to do before they do it and then really impress them. Because I know basketball. I know all the potential plays, all the gimmicks that the people can throw in any situation. And then Sunesis, I can execute during the live game in real time by reading and reacting to whatever the other team throws at me. And I can be successful. What is Paul getting at here? He wants us to be able to live a successful life through a relationship with Jesus Christ. He wants us to be able to face any circumstance in life. And because of our relationship with God, because of our understanding of who he is through his word, we know, we live, we do, we understand. He's piling these words up to make a point. There's a few words that I skipped. Not just knowledge, not just wisdom, not just understanding, but the knowledge of his will. And for all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This truth is spiritual. It is something that God wants us to know. It is something that you do not just understand by yourself or through life experience. It is something that is from God. It is something that is from Christ. Something that is from the Holy Spirit. And very simply, it is God's will for you to obey what he has revealed in his word. Right? That makes sense. God's will for you is to obey his revealed word in the power of his spirit. I want you to notice the close connection to being filled with the word of God and the spirit of God. I think those two things are connected being filled with the word of God and thus the spirit of God. Look over at Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And notice how these are linked together. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then flip over to, again, the sister book of Colossians, Ephesians chapter 5. And notice how these words sound very similar, but Paul adds another aspect to this. Ephesians 5 verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. As you are filled with the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, the understanding of God, we are able to live these spiritual truths out. We even sang that earlier in one of our hymns, you may not have caught that, you might catch it now, the third stanza of Here is Love, the first words were, In thy truth, thy dust direct me, by thy spirit, and by thy word. They're connected. And I know I haven't told you anything you don't know yet, but here's where we're going. In many cases, we know what we're supposed to do, Right? Do we always do what we know we're supposed to do? No. We don't. But very often we know what we're supposed to do. 
But what about when we're facing a situation that we've never seen? As pastors, we say, well, they didn't teach me that in seminary, Dr. Williams. Chapter and verse for this situation? Now what do I do? How do I respond when God hasn't told me exactly what he wants me to do? And we're thankful for the times where he says, thus says the Lord, or this is the will of God, your sanctification, as, it, as in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. But what about when God does not tell us exactly what to do? I think this is the heart of what Paul is getting at by stacking all of these words up. And just as an illustration, I'd encourage you to go over to the Gospel of John. John chapter 14. Jesus is having a precious conversation with his disciples who are scared. This plan that they had in their minds is not quite working out the way they thought it was going to. Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die, I'm going to a cross, and I'm leaving you. He says, but don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm departing, and it's even to your advantage that I go away. And the Spirit of God will come and he will help you and he will convict the world of sin. And then he says these words. Listen to these words in John 14, verse 21. Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest or disclose myself to him. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. I'm not trying to give you some sort of mystical or Gnostic knowledge that we can tap into if we just let go and let God. That is not what I think Paul is getting at here. But I think what Paul is teaching us here is there is a great value in understanding the heart of someone to whom you have an intimate relationship with. For example, have you ever taken something to your wife or to your husband, and upon delivering that to them, they said these words, How did you know I wanted that? How did you know I could use that right now? And what is your next response? Well, I've been married to you for fill in the blank. Knowing the heart of God, when we are facing a situation that does not have a chapter and verse, does not have a black and white answer, does your heart love God? Does your heart love Christ? Are you so in tune with obedience to Christ that your heart is like Christ's So that in moments of fear, in moments of being paralyzed by I don't know what to do, I have knowledge and wisdom and understanding and I can walk worthy of the Lord in all manner pleasing him. This is a relational type of knowledge. If you have your hymnal, I very often connect songs that we sing to passages of scripture Turn to him, 503. We won't sing it, but I want you to look at this text. This is the song that comes to my mind as I'm meditating on these truths that Paul is expounding upon. 
Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art, and I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me to gaze upon thee, and thy beauty fills my soul, for thy for by thy transforming power, thou hast made me whole. Oh, how great thy loving kindness, vaster, broader than the sea. Oh, how marvelous thy goodness, lavished all on me. Yes, I rest in thee, beloved. I know what wealth of grace is thine. Know by thy certainty of promise and have made it mine. Simply trusting thee, I behold thee as thou art. And thy love, so pure, so changeless, satisfies my heart, satisfies my deepest longings, meets supplies its every need, compass me around with blessings. Thine is love indeed. And ever lift thy face upon me as I work and wait for thee. Resting neath thy smile, Lord Jesus, earth's dark shadows flee. Brightness of my Father's glory, sunshine of my Father's face, Keep me, ever trusting, resting, fill me with thy grace. Paul says, I pray that you will go deeper and deeper into the knowledge of God and that your relationship with him through Christ and the Spirit will be such that you can be ready to skillfully face any situation by using what you know about who you know in such a way that pleases the Lord and makes him look good. That is the recipe, what it takes to walk worthy of the salvation which God has called us to walk. But this requires some obvious application questions. First of all, are you actually pursuing a deeper relationship with Christ? Are you pursuing a deeper relationship with Christ? If we did this with a marriage illustration, we could say, are you actually married to your spouse, or do you just live together? Are you pursuing a deeper relationship with Christ? Are you reading his word to know him, or just about him? Is Jesus more than data to you? Is he more than facts and details to you? Is learning about Jesus more than just arranging your checklist of morality that you mark off every day? Is going to church just the thing that you do to maintain the facade of a relationship with Jesus Christ? Or are you increasing in knowledge, wisdom, and understanding? Are you communing with him as friend to friend for the purpose of knowing all about him and his heart for you and what he wants you to do in circumstances where you have no answer? Do you have an honest, sincere, conversational prayer life, or is Jesus just a genie to call on when you need something from him? The cosmic vending machine type mentality. These are questions I have to ask myself as I read these verses. What does it take to have a worthy walk? We've answered that question, and we're secondly going to look at the question, what does a worthy walk look like? The fleshing out these, these ingredients, Paul goes on to say in Colossians chapter 1, 
the second part of verse 10. Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul goes on to give four different participles here, which really spells out what a worthy walk looks like. And he starts with bearing fruit in every good work. I mean, this makes sense. We, we know this. We know Ephesians 2.10. We've been saved unto good works. We've been saved to good works. But what does this look like in your life? You know, I, I mentioned a few weeks ago, a few months ago, Becky and I went up to California, and we left Minnesota in February and got to California in, in February the world looked a lot different in California. We got off the plane and I said, hey, Becky, look, flowers. That's what this word means. It means never going into a season of dormancy. You are continuously bearing fruit. You never have an off season. You are continuously growing and bearing fruit. You know, again, this just seems so abstract. How do I know if I'm fruitful? How do I know if I'm growing? What I always ask myself as a litmus test of am I fruitful, I always ask myself, what do my relationships with people look like right now? How do my conversations go with my wife, with my children, with my pastoral staff friends, with my church members? Am I filled with the fruit of the Spirit and the way I interact with people. And I think that is so often where we see the fruit or the flesh manifested in our relationships with other people. But Paul says a worthy walk looks like bearing fruit in every good work, present continuous, no season of dormancy. When people look at your life, do they say, hey, fruit? May that be the case. May we be walking worthy. May people see a worthy walk fleshed out. Secondly, the second participle, Paul says, increasing in the knowledge of God. And this is really the other side of the same coin, the, the opposite side of the coin from the first participle. And Paul is talking about growth here that is reciprocal or is intensive as opposed to extensive. And, and here's what that means. If you want to get more apples from your apple tree or from your yard, what might you think you need to do? Plant more apple trees, right? That would be extensive growth. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is saying, I want you to grow intensively. This is the John 15 type of growth where the Lord purges and prunes the believers so that they can grow more fruit. Don't plant more trees. Cultivate the tree that God has given you. 
increase in the knowledge of God. And this again goes back to the idea of a relationship. The closer we grow to God, the closer we grow in relationship, the more effective and efficient workers we can be on their behalf to do what they want us to do. Are you increasing in your ability to cultivate fruit with the life and the ministry that God has called you to? The better we know Christ, the better we can serve him and please him. The third participle is found in verse 11. Paul goes on to say, not just, not just bearing fruit continuously, not just increasing in the knowledge of God, but, but, let, but thirdly, being strengthened with all power. May you be strengthened with all power. Those who seek to live a life worthy of and pleasing to the Lord are graciously given power and help toward that end. God gives us spiritual power. But where does this power come from? We read earlier from Ephesians 3, let me read it again, that, that Paul says that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. This power comes by the Holy Spirit. The question you have to ask yourself is, how powerful is the power of the Holy Spirit? How would you answer that? How powerful is the power of the Holy Spirit? Paul said, according to the glorious might, according to his glorious might. If you want to look over again at the sister book of Colossians, chapter 1 of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul gives us a hint as to the spiritual power that is at work in us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us to cause us to bear fruit and increase in the knowledge of God and to walk worthy of the Lord. Okay, but what does that look like in our lives? And here's where I'm tempted to go. If that power is available in my life, I should be out there doing some pretty incredible things, right? Let's all go down to the Capitol building right now. Well, it's Sunday. Might not be that many people there. But tomorrow morning, and let's go down to the Capitol building. Let's preach. Let's speak in tongues. Let's cast out demons. Let's heal people. Let's get something done with this power that's going on in us. Isn't that where your mind usually goes when you think of the word power? Power to do stuff, move stuff, build stuff. But that's not where Paul is going here. Look at the text. What is this power for? May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all, what is it? Patience and endurance with joy. This power produces peaceful endurance in the face of difficulties. God gives us this incredible power not just to be delivered from difficulty, but to be sustained through difficulty. He does talk about being delivered from the power of Satan in this passage. 
but God has not yet completely saved us. We still struggle with our own sin. We still struggle with the impact of sin upon a fallen world. We still face hardship. And what is one of the most impactful testimonies of a true believer to the world? How they respond in the face of the most painful and gruesome circumstances. Paul says, may you be strengthened for all endurance and patience with joy. These these sister nouns, endurance and patience. What comes to your mind when you hear these words, endurance, patience? I have a very vivid memory of a toddler jumping on the back of a golden retriever. And that golden retriever was my friend's, was looking at me saying, please get this kid off me. But you know what that golden retriever did? As that toddler climbed on top of him and pulled on his ears, you know what that golden retriever did? Absolutely nothing. It was calm. It was enduring. It was patient. It was tranquil. Tranquil. A form of this word, endurance, is actually used in Roman and Greek literature to describe the shield formations of armies. They all get together and they interlock their shields together. But while that's happening, what's going on? There is an army bloodthirsty for them, charging at them. And it is this idea of holding the line with all calmness, even though death itself is raining down upon me. Beloved, the world does not understand that. Are we showing that to the world? That is what Paul says he's praying for, that we would be strengthened to give the testimony of endurance and patience to people that need to see the gospel at work in our lives. We, we just sang earlier from one of our songs, Oft I walk beneath the cloud, dark as midnight's gloomy shroud, but when fear is at its height, what does the world do? Despair, suicide, drugs, alcohol, pleasure, whatever. But when fear is at its height, what does a Christian do? Jesus comes and all is light. The world cannot understand this. Yesterday at the funeral for Brian Metzler, we sang a very fitting song at the end. And the song reminded us of some truths that, that stand in stark reality, stark contrast to each other. We sang, How Great Thou Art. We all know that song, right? What does the first verse talk about? We look at God in creation. We see that he is real through his very real creation. But then it goes on to talk about in verse 3, there's something wrong. And it wasn't God that made creation bad. It was our sin. God is the creator. We are the sinners. But God himself is the savior. God sent Christ, demonstrated his love for us to free us from the darkness of sin. And here's the point. While we're wrestling with the pains and the effects of sin, while the tears are coming from our eyes, while there are no words coming from our mouths because we are weeping, then sings our souls to God. The world cannot do that. So are you living this testimony to the world? Being strengthened not to do stuff, but to endure stuff. 
And then lastly, my time is about up here. What is this last manifestation of the worthy walk? Verses 12 through 14 identifies it as thankfulness. Giving thanks to the Father. You know, how important is thankfulness to God? How important is thankfulness or the gratitude attitude to God? Perhaps we could better answer that question by asking another question. How seriously does God take grumbling? How seriously does God take whining and complaining? Have you ever wondered what it would be like to live in a time when God's miraculous hand of work was impossible to deny? You ever thought about what it would be like to be a disciple where you see Jesus healing and you're even tempted in your own hubris to say, I'd believe if I saw that. Surely seeing God work so clearly would make us happy and content. But then we're reminded of this group of people called the Israelites. You heard of them? Such were the days of the Israelites. They saw God transfer them from the domain of darkness called Egypt and redeem them and bring them into a land which they had not purchased, they had not deserved. God redeemed them, rescued them, ushered them into this glorious land of promise. And the only thing that could stand in the way of the Israelites was their own complaining. Remember what they did? If you want to turn, you don't have to turn there, but in the book of Numbers, this is right after the, the fever pitch that was in the camp when the spies returned from Canaan and say, we can't do it, guys. They're too big. They're too strong. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose another leader and go back to Egypt. Are you kidding me? Moses and Aaron plead for the people to trust in God's provision. But the people would have none of it. And the Lord's anger burns white hot. Verses 11 and 12, the Lord says, How long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you a greater nation and mightier than they Moses again begs God to show his people mercy and God did but there were severe consequences for grumbling and complaining Paul says this in Philippians 2.14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. How seriously does God take grumbling? It puts out our light that shines to the world. Grumbling is the way of the flesh. Thankfulness is the way of the spirit. 
There's some verses that flesh this out. Hebrews 13, 15, I've been thinking about today. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Psalm 116, verse 17, psalmist says, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. It's easy to give thanks when things are well, but how about when it's a sacrifice of thanksgiving? When I don't understand. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Almost every good Minnesotan conversation begins with what question? How you doing? Pretty good. Doing good. Doing well. Anybody respond with the phrase, I'm better than I deserve? Anybody ever respond with, it could be worse? And you know what? That might be the most true statement that you could make. You know what? It could be a lot worse. God could have chosen not to love us. Christ could have chosen not to exchange the joy of heaven for the anguish of a cross. We do not gather together tonight because of how we feel. We gather together tonight because of the truth of who God is despite our circumstances and our feelings. We do not give praise to God because we feel good. We, we praise God from our souls because he is the king of heaven. And we can say words like we are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Because of that, evermore his praises we will sing. We do not sing because of how we feel. We sing because of what God has done for us, which impacts our affections for him. And how can we help but sing? Now listen again as we conclude from Colossians 1. Listen and take note of the lengths that God went to save you. Starting in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Have you experienced the joy of God's deliverance from your sin? Have you experienced that? It could be worse, beloved. It could be worse. One of my favorite lines in all of hymnody is what I want us to conclude with tonight. And instrumentalist, you can stay where you are. We'll just sing this with our voices. Take a hymnal, please, and turn to hymn number 108. We're not going to sing the, the song that we had originally planned on singing tonight. I'm going to call an audible. Take your hymnal. And let's sing together as we stand, verses 1 
and three of Come Christians Join to Sing and take note of the phrase, Praise is His Gracious Choice. Would you sing with me? Come Christians join to sing, Alleluia! Christ again. Praise yet our Christ again. Alleluia. Amen. Life shall not end the strain. Alleluia. Amen. On heaven's blissful shore, his good